beautiful part of my experience here. So as we're in the building, I'm feeling us sitting under this sky too. So after Dara's beautiful talk last night on the hindrances, you know, it's fresh in my mind the kind of heartfulness that it takes to be on a retreat like this and do the practice with all of the jangly um, mind and body states, all of the unforeseen bumps that, um, that are the path. It takes a lot of uh, care to sit with ourselves and do this practice that we're doing. And when you consider what brings you to this path, what brings you to be here on this retreat, you know, there's different ways we can articulate and explain why the heck it is that, that you're here doing this. And uh, you know, some of you might be here to really come to peace or, um, with the aging or with illness, with the condition of your body. Some of you may be here because you just feel like there's so much work to be done. You know, some of you are here because of very clear dukkha in your life or a inner calling, like a sense that there's something more that's possible. There's something deeper that's possible. But no matter what the words are that we use to explain why we're here in this way, what's really necessary for this path, some of what's a part of what's really necessary for this path to be sustained and to flourish is, is, a, is a heart connection, is a heart connection beneath our reasons, you know, so that you being here doesn't become a big, a big should, a big bunch of um, concepts that will leave you striving and unfulfilled at the, at the same time. So I was remembering a, a period of time, this was about, about 12 or 15 years ago in, in my own practice. And my practice, like I wanted to love the practice, but I was going through this time where I just really wasn't. It was feeling stale and dry to me. And I was like wanting to get my Dharma mojo back and it just wasn't happening. I was trying to sit every day, but I, I didn't really want to. And uh, maybe some of you know how that can feel. And I went and I talked to a friend and I said, I don't know what's wrong. I know, I know that this practice is good for me, but I'm like, you know, really uninspired. And uh, she said, well, Erin, you need to go hang out with a saint. I was like, I can't go hang out with a saint. I'm working, you know. And, um, and she said, well, maybe you need to like bring in the images of somebody who really makes you feel your heart. And immediately the, the image of Deepa Ma, the great teacher of many of our teachers, picture of her down in the gratitude hut, you know, she kind of flashed into my mind. And for a couple months, my practice was like sitting, staring at her picture. That was what I needed to feel my heart and to fall back in love with the practice. It was a time when I, I actually didn't need to be mindful of in and out breathing. I needed to connect with the deeper love of why I was doing this at all. And there was just something in her gaze that um, helped me remember in myself just what's possible in terms of liberation and, and love. And so some of, I, th I think what brings each of us to the path in our own ways is a, a longing for some sense of connection, a longing for a, like a resting place, you know, with all that goes on in life and all of your eyes are open to the degree where you, you know, you see, you, you know the exquisite vulnerability of what it means to be human in this world. You know, you know that. And... Oh, and when we really connect with that vulnerability and when we, when we you know, know that we're born and we're going to die and things go up and things go down, you know, it's like that longing for a place to rest. And that place to rest, it doesn't live outside of your heart and your mind. It lives inside of you. It's, it's 
part of your, your very nature. Maya Angelou said, the ache for home lives in all of us. The safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. Who doesn't want that? (laughs) To go and just let it all hang out. To be as you are and not be questioned. And so I'm going to be speaking a bit tonight about the, the, um, the heart qualities, in particular metta. You know, the word vihara is translated as abode or dwelling, perhaps home, Brahma, noble, uh, divine, kind of like these Brahma viharas, happy homes, happy abidings for, for our hearts. And it matters, right? It matters. It matters how we're inclining the citta. It matters the, um, the direction that we are cultivating. You know, any given moment, right, is in part shaped by this huge stream and force of, um, of previous karma. And any new moment when we're bringing uh, wisdom awareness, when we're bringing qualities such as compassion or loving kindness to the experience, we shape the unfolding of our, of our lives. We shape our mind stream. We're planting these seeds. And you know that what you're doing here is like crazy good wholesome. It's like it's really an honor actually to speak into this field with so many of you devoting, devoting yourselves to the practice in this way. you know the experience of, a, of like what an open heart feels like. It feels good. You can just flash on that for a moment. You might not be sitting here feeling like your heart's all that open. But we have moments where our heart just spontaneously opens. In those moments, there's a sense of feeling empathy, feeling connected to life, feeling a sense of uh, nourishment, warmth. And, you know, we know the times when it's not like that, right? Times when you might wish you were a big ball of metta, but where the truth is that there's tightness or constriction or a feeling of being held back somehow. And, and, or a feeling of um, like the, the tightness can feel protective in a certain way. Like, you know, you maybe don't want it to be there, but you sort of do. You know, it can feel like we get really attached to our suffering, our dukkha in that kind of way. And so as I'm speaking about metas, I'm speaking about the heart qualities, I'm not wanting to just say what's already being said in the, in the Brahma Vihara sitting. So I'll just be sharing some reflections with you, some, some stories. Because in cultivating the wise heart, you know, it's like you're not here to crank out metta on demand. It's just another big um, craving, just another big identity. But what matters, what matters is if you understand the obstacles to friendliness with yourself, if you understand the obstacles and um, if you practice trusting the practice to begin to soften them, metabolize them, eventually move them through. And then, and then we become more available for the Dharma. We become... Um, there's like a, a greater potential that becomes possible in our hearts. Some years ago, I was on long retreat here and I was doing meta practice and I was, well, maybe I was 10, 10 days in or so and I was walking right out there. It's, this is one of those, you know, those moments in practice that you remember very clearly. It's one of those moments I remember very clearly. It was mid-morning and the sun was beginning to warm up the air and there was like still, still dew, dew drops on the green grass. And I was doing walking meditation just back and forth fairly slowly. And I was doing metta for my godsons who are now teenagers. I still can't believe it. My godsons 
Caleb and August. And I, I have such, you know, it's just so easy to love these two. I'm crazy about these two. Well, they used to be little boys. I, I still can't get over calling them, them teenagers. But I was just, I've been working with Meta with them for a while. And I was out walking, you know, going the, through the phrases, going through the visualization. And there was this, this moment where it felt like kind of a, a field of metta sort of swallowed me up. There was a sense of, of um, it wasn't really me doing metta for them anymore, but there was really this, just this simple abiding. It was this, this abiding, you know, there was metta and there was um, awareness. I remember it clearly because it really impacted me. It was just like, it was kind of that, that boundless dimension of metta that just happened um, on its own. And I remember having the thought, I had this thought about the, the blood in my arms, you know, like the blood in my body. And I was thinking about the orange that I'd had for lunch that day. And there was this sense of, this isn't my blood, you know, this is like these atoms running through, you know, my arteries and my veins for right now. It's like, you know, it probably was part of an orange a few hours ago. It's not my blood. And, and just kind of sensing into my godsons and just, just really appreciating um, how profoundly interconnected we all are, you know, and how the, that, that dew on the, um, on the grass you know, it was, could have been a drop of rain in the sky some time ago. It's just this, this sense of being in the soup of life and benevolence being part of that kind of soup of life. And when the Buddha uses words like suffusing or pervading or... Uh, radiating. Those are well-chosen words. We know these are translations from Pali. You're, you're translating some of those. You're, you're um, chanting some of those in the, in the evening chanting. But it kind of suggests how that feels, how that kind of warm connectedness of, of the heart qualities of metta in particular may, may feel. These practices that we're doing are, are transformative. They, they just, um, they, they change the way our experience is motivated. They, they shift the way our experience and our perception is structured. And we're really in this process together of moving from a separative kind of consciousness to a more holistic consciousness that embraces life that embraces our experience and one another. So through the Vipassana practice, you know, through our insight practice, we see this just, you know, you know it well, the programs, all the programs. You come in for your interviews, you talk about all the programs, all this stuff over and over again. Um, Like, yeah, like, Meta's fine out there, but not in here because of this horrible thing that I did. And I'm not going to put that down. Or, you know, the truth is I'm really not good enough. No matter what anybody says, no matter what the evidence is, I am the one person in this room who's never going to get this. I know that one. I know that one so well. Um, so the stream, right? The stream of programming, the stream of sankhara that, that runs through and and in the practice, we're moving from like, you know, seeing just through that to s- tuning into something that's beyond it. The sankara still, these formations pass through. We come to appreciate and sense a larger field through which it's all, all unfolding. So things land, like Adrian was talking about with her talk on the body, things land in a much more vast and spacious way. I... I heard somebody talk a while ago about this, this teaching of the inner roommate. Have, you, have some of you heard of that? That like the stories you tell yourself about yourself, this kind of programming, that if you were living with a roommate, 
who is telling you all that stuff about you. You know, you walk in the kitchen and that person says, you're not good enough, you suck, you can't do this. You know, what would you say to that roommate? You would say, get out of my house, leave. <laughs> you know, but, but, but yet um, internally, it's, it's just not that simple. So over time, as we move from the kind of confinement of our stories, living inside the boxes of our stories and the kinds of pressure to to stay there, um, you know, our hearts soften. Things open up and expand. And life can feel more like a field, more like a experience of, of resonance, which is very different than meeting when, you know, like the story of me is meeting my story of you, and your story of me is meeting your story of you. It's not very interesting, right? It's like not dynamic in the least. And so On the level I'm speaking to, you know, these practices bring us more into relationship, not less into relationship. And metta, you know, we have all these images, the phrases, all the instructions, but it's so much more than the sum of its parts. You know, it's like metta moves us in this direction of of connectedness that I think is very much the point of spiritual practices, to touch into a uh, deeper dimension of who we are, that it's something that has more of the flavor of, of something more mysterious and compelling than what our stories about ourselves are. Ajahn Suchito is a teacher who's been really... Um, important in my own practice and I really appreciate his his language and his um you know long long history in the Thai forest tradition and he says he says so begin with the sacred contemplate what you hold most sacred and of value and extend it in all directions to others as to myself Bring this field to mind, participate in it, live in it, and let go into it, the sacred, because it's the only place where deep sanity can occur. That's the purpose of cultivating the relational field. Be mindful of that aim, bear it in mind, and follow it. This intent is for our lasting welfare. Like, what a beautiful instruction to contemplate for you what is most sacred. That's an important word to have in our practices, sacred. What is most sacred and to extend that in all directions. I, uh, I teach a lot at a small retreat center in northern New Mexico. It's a wilderness retreat center and it's just like hundred some acres and we're surrounded by 300,000 acres of national forest land. I love teaching there and there's these huge old growth, um, old growth ponderosa forests and um, river, flowers, berries. It's really, it's really, it's kind of like a paradise in my opinion, but you know, you can go to like a paradise and suffer a whole lot because of your own mind. And I was reflecting on this talk and I was remembering working with a, a woman many, many years ago and she was you know, really happy to be at the center, but she was having, not but Anne she was having, she was having a really hard time. There were some incredibly painful family issues going on for her. And she came in, uh, you know, she, she came in for several interviews. We were working with it. She was frustrated. She was angry. She felt uh, totally disconnected and, and hopeless in the middle of all of it. And, you know, I just said, go sit outside for a while. Go sit outside. And 
She said she went into the forest and she did this standing meditation. And she said, I was so desperate. She said, I just called out, like, if there's any metta and compassion in this universe, will it come sit in my heart, please? And she was calling out a, a kind of prayer for herself. And she was just praying, praying, calling out for this. And you know, things got still for a little while for her. And then she opened her eyes, she told me. And she said that she realized that she was in this um, grove with four, you know, a huge ponderosa. When I say huge, I mean like seven, eight hundred years old, in front of her and behind her and to each side. And she said it was like realizing that she'd been in the company of the four Brahma Viharas the whole time. She just hadn't seen it. She hadn't recognized it. And, um, and she said, she said in that moment, <laughs> she said, I spontaneously made the decision to marry myself. She said, because she said, I realized the love didn't live outside of myself. It was really this, um, this beautiful uh, experience for her. And that, you know, we, when, we, when we call upon... Um, these qualities were really um, calling upon the own depth of, of, of our own nature, of who we really are. And what we're doing here is such a core, fundamental shift in our perception, isn't it? The, the dominant culture in this country, this constant barrage of information, basically, that reinforces the idea that we are independent, solitary persons. And that if we, you know, get the right product, we'll be better independent, solitary persons. I spent the first 18 years of my life in Fargo, North Dakota, Fargo like the movie, that's where I'm from. And I think I probably had a PhD in self-reliance by the time I was 13 years old. You know, that, that Midwestern work ethic so strongly, um, <laughs> you know, just like reinforces, you know, be nice to everybody no matter what, but don't need anybody, you know, don't, don't need anything. And, and while that can be quite productive, Ultimately, it's a walling off. Ultimately, it's taking refuge in a kind of separateness that's at odds with the deeper truth that holds our lives. And um, I was thinking about Fargo today and kindness and metta and how the people in Fargo are generally, there's a lot of really nice people there. Nice is a little different than kind. You know, nice is like being agreeable and... Um, pleasing, you know, kind is a little more attuned and um, loving and benevolent. And I was, I was remembering when a family member <laughs> was dying in Fargo and, uh, you know, people show their, their kindness in so many different ways. And all these people were bringing us hamburger buns. They were bringing us, you know, boxes of 45 hamburger buns. Like it was how they were showing their love. <laughs> It was to the point where there would be more hamburger buns and there were donuts and donut holes, these big boxes of donut holes. Like, you can only eat so many donut holes. And it got to the point where these, these like, bags of things were coming in the front door and I was secretly t putting them out the trash in the back door. And, and then people would be bringing these salads, lots of salads. Like, we got marshmallow salad and got jello salad. <laughs> We got Cool Whip salad and mayonnaise salad. You know, not, not Spirit Rock salads. It's just, just appreciating. No, nothing green. The only thing green was the Jello. It's just appreciating, like, all the different expressions of care. <laughs> so, for me, metta has been a really healing practice. You know, metta for me has been part of softening and um, removing this, this hard-hearted view of being on my own. You know, 
and maybe that's true for you too. It's, it's fascinating that we can feel so independent and so solitary when, you know, it took your parents to conceive you. You know, it didn't happen out of nowhere. You know, and somebody along the way helped you be born physically, you know, into this life. And we're living on this, with this, we are part of this planet of shared resources. Our, you know, our life is dependent upon the resources of this planet and the, the infrastructure, you know, the communities, the societies we live in. And yet, you know, we feel so separate. So, so the dominant culture here, you know, where there's a lot of training in what I'm going to call the brain sense. You know, this training and noticing how, like noticing discrete objects and events, kind of be like categorizing in the mind, putting the right thing in the right file folder, um, you know, knowing that it's, oh, it's, it's Thursday. I said Friday in the beginning, right? Is it, it's Thursday. <laughs> like knowing that today's Thursday. <laughs> you can tell what camp I'm in. <laughs> knowing that today's Thursday, you know, I'm Aaron and you're at Spirit Rock and you're hearing a Dharma talk and... Um, that's the, that's the brain sense. And the brain sense is especially wired to notice in relationship to our comfort or discomfort. And then there's the heart sense. Um, and the heart sense notices more how things are manifesting in you know, detail in a particular moment. The heart sense is, is more like what's you know, feeling, what's the mood in the room in this moment as I'm speaking. I know as you're aware of your breathing, that sense of, is the breath deep or shallow, smooth, shaky? When you think of the heart sense, if you could lick your finger and hold it up to the breeze, that experience would be a little more like the heart sense. And um, Dara and I were talking about it, and Dara said, she said in her infinite wisdom, she's like, yeah, the brain sense is black and white, and the heart sense brings color. I thought, oh yeah, I like that. And, um, and so, you know, in the human journey, there's, there's a way that we, we can elevate the brain sense. That can be a lot of how the, the training is and a lot of how, even in a meditation, uh, we think we're supposed to be perceiving, you know, through, through the file folder kind of sense. And, um, and that can get, it's part of functioning. It's important, obviously. We need to have that brain sense. It's really important. Um, and that kind of separative consciousness can get brought down into the heart. And it can be, um, it's actually pretty much inevitable that that happens along our human journeys. But when it's unhealed over time, there can just be a lot of pain there. That kind of separative sense that's in, in the heart center. You know, when Carol was talking about uh, the Dalai Lama and the people that would come meet the Dalai Lama and how his expression would, would just mirror, you know, those people that he met, that's because of his, of his incredibly well-developed heart. He's not thinking about that. He's resonating with them. He's feeling them. And as I'm speaking about this, I want to be really clear, like, you, know, you don't need to have any big experience here at all. Mindfulness, the practice that we're doing here of mindfulness, it just it connects us naturally with this place. When you pay attention fully, um, you know, in my experience, when I pay attention fully, it can start to look a little like love. You know, a fullness of attention. When we really place our attention on something, it reveals itself to us more and more and more. We see into the nature with sustained attention. And this isn't just, you know, the, the birds or the slugs or another yogi. This is like, you know, our inner life. We're allowing more of our inner life, our, our, our truth to come forth. Henry, Henry Miller says, the moment one gives close attention to anything, even a blade of grass, it becomes a mysterious, awesome, indescribably magnificent world in itself. Attention. Attention. 
as a gift of love. In the Metta Sutta from the Samutta Nikaya, the group discourses, um, part of part of the the sutta is, and I'm I'm absolutely oversimplifying this because there's way too much in it to talk about um, in this moment. But um, you know, this this weaving together of love and wisdom of 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 um, the two wings really along the path of awakening is is just it's it's everywhere when we when we look. And there's this story about the that some of the Buddhist monks went to this park of the wanderers of other sects. So these wanderers, these people who taught other sorts of spiritual teachings. And and basically it was their understanding that the Buddha taught Brahma Vihara practice. And they said to these monks, the Buddhist monks, they said, well, well, we teach that too. And we teach the practices of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so, well, what's up? What's the difference between what the Buddha's teaching and what we're, te- what, what we're teaching? They didn't understand the difference. And so the monks went back to the Buddha and told the Buddha what had happened. And the Buddha instructed them in, in their response. And he said, you know, to go back and... Um, ask these wanderers of other sects how liberation through each of the Brahma-viharas is developed. And the Buddha told them to ask them this because he knew that, that they, couldn't, they wouldn't be able to answer it. He knew that it was beyond their range. And the Buddha goes on to speak really beautifully about each of the Brahma-viharas in relationship to each of the seven factors of awakening which we'll talk about later in the retreat, but each of the four Brahma-viharas in relationship to mindfulness, to effort, to investigation, to joy, to calm, to concentration, to equanimity. And it's this beautiful weaving together around the climate of a mind that is fertile for liberation, includes these factors of awakening and includes these qualities of the heart all together altogether. So I really, um, you know, there's different ideas out there that uh, metta is a very important part of meditation as a liberating practice. When Deepama was asked like what it was like to be inside her mind. That in my mind there are only two things, love and emptiness. Straightforward and profound. He also said meditation is love. Bless those around you. If you bless those around you, it will inspire you to be attentive in every moment. In my own practice, you know, the metta has been so important to tenderize for me. You know, there's times when in order to really investigate, we need to soften a little bit. You know, it's like if a muscle's really tight and a massage therapist goes in there really hard, really quickly there's going to be more tension created. You know, but if there's some time and some slow contact and softening and warmth, things begin to open up in a way where the tension actually um, can lessen over time. So part of why this is so important in the practice, especially with what Dara talked about last night, you know, is, is when the hindrances come, when things are challenging, when you're having a hard time, you know, the conditioning, we're so highly conditioned to respond with piling on more self-judgment, piling on more loathing. You know, as if craving isn't hard enough, then it becomes that like, not only something's wrong because you're craving, but something's wrong with you. <laughs> and, um, 
And, uh, you know, we get really caught here. You know, we get caught identifying and pushing away. And that is so much of what allows us to begin to soften and get off the merry-go-round. It's so much of what allows um, a softening that lets the karmic formations um, move through in a new way, a new, new relationship right there, a kind of, kind of receptive non-hatred, a receptive non-hatred. So it's not like metta has to be some syrupy, sweet anything much more, much more uh, real than that. So if you're sitting with some challenges, you know, because um, oftentimes, you know, it's like things are hard, I'm just going to meta it away. Like if I do enough meta, I'll get rid of the jealousy. But that's not really the wisest intention. You know, you, you can just sit, you know, in the presence of this self-loathing, may I be well. In the presence of wanting to get out of here, may I be well. In the presence of rage that I don't think I can hold, may I be well. Presence of this body with all that comes with this body. May I be well. And sit as if you were sitting with the Buddha or with Kuan Yin or with whatever being um, helps you sense into your own nobility. Because your wellness. Your wellness, the kind we're talking about here, is a, is a gift to this world. And I don't mean that in a trite way. You know, like, we're here, the, Buddha, the Buddha's Brahma-vihara practice is a well-wishing that extends to all being and that has an element of action in it. You know, so tending to your own well-being in this way uh, translates into a gift um, to this world that, that will come forth in action. You know, it's not just like some little psychological self-improvement project, you know, because the change we want to see um, has everything to do with the consciousness of human hearts and minds. And the, this, this softening will allow the insight to go much, to penetrate, to go much more deeply. Many of you, you know, know, know a lot about the story of the Buddha's journey. And sometimes these, these uh, you know, what we share up here around, around the Buddha's journey, sometimes some of you might take that quite literally as, as historical events in which you have a lot of confidence. For some of you, there may be more of an archetypal or mythological interpretation. But there's this, uh, you know, the, the Buddha went to great lengths <laughs> to... To, to wake up, and it wasn't always with a ton of wisdom. You know, he went through these crazy self-mortification practices. You've heard where he could, like, he wasn't eating, he was eating a grain of rice a day, and he could touch his backbone through his belly. And he was um, doing practices where he tried not to breathe, and um, where there's just so much pain, because there was some belief that this would, that this would burn away karma, some sort of transcending the body. And... Um, it was really torturing his own body. And, and there's a story that's often told about a, a woman named Sujata who was staying in the area where the Buddha was doing these, these mortification practices and that she was watching the Buddha at a distance. And uh, that she saw one time when he went to go try to take a drink and he fell over. You can just imagine how emaciated he must have looked. And she thought, this, this guy is not well. And she went back to her her dwelling and she made him some, some rice milk and she brought it to him. And, you know, his mind, while his body was being tortured, basically, his mind was actually quite focused and, and clear and she brought it to him 
and he engaged her. He engaged her, and he he took he took the rice milk from from her, and um, you know his companions, the other five men he was with, were, they were disgusted. They thought he wimped out, and said, you know, he's being all luxurious, and he's abandoned his exertion, and um, you know they ended up later getting enlightened from his awakening. Um, but 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 there was a shift in him. There was a shift in him when he stopped indulging these mortification practices and took the rice milk. And um, it was like, you know, he saw the futility of a path that was only pain. He saw the futility of pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And there's something in this for us. You know, it's not like he just got lazy and spent all day hiking around. But he... um, came into a more balanced effort, a more a deeper balance of of kindness along with, with um with the wisdom and you know in the commentaries when they use this image of of a mother nursing a baby, that's that's the image that's offered with with um with Metta. It's it's that place inside where you need to offer yourself that that basic mil- milk of human kindness. But it's not so straightforward. It sounds great. It sounds just great. Um, but we don't get to be that kind of big, boundless love and also be the story of ourselves. Like, that gets in the way. I was, <laughs> I was on retreat here many, many Februarys ago. And I came from Colorado and I thought, great, February in California, it's going to be like, warm and I, uh, I didn't even bring a down jacket. I brought a lot of light things and I was so cold. It was, it was a cold February that month and um, I was sitting over here somewhere in the hall and somebody had the job of opening and closing the windows. I don't know if somebody has that job on this retreat, but it's a pretty impossible job because nobody's ever going to be completely satisfied with the temperature in the hall. So I was, I was so cold and Every time this woman would open the window, I just was seething at her because I got colder and colder and colder. And so I was trying to be all kind and send her metta, but the truth was she was one of those people where I I had my eye on her during the retreat. (laughs) One of those people where you're kind of like trying not to watch them, but you're watching them because they get under your skin a little bit. So so I basically was having a Vipassana vendetta with this woman, I was, I was um, in this huge storm of aversion. And so because my mind was in aversion, um, I was projecting it in, onto everything that she did. I started watching her going through the food line. I was like, oh, she's wiping her nose before she grabs the salad tongs. She's putting her coat all over the place. You know, it was just like um, she couldn't do anything right as far as I was concerned. And uh, so that was part of my retreat working with aversion. And then there was this other thing going on the last two weeks of the retreat that in the evenings, many evenings, not every evening, but a lot of them, I I would hear these faint sobs of the person who was in the dorm next to me. She would, um, she was crying. And I just, every time I would hear her cry and weep, I just, it was hard not to go over there and just, you know, sit down with her and say like, "How, how can I help? You're hurting. And so it was a real part, another part of my experience the last two weeks was just hearing the tears of this being and feeling a lot of compassion and a lot of care. And I, I didn't know who that was until the last day when we went and we were cleaning our rooms. And um, I was going into my room and she, this woman was grabbing the vacuum to go clean her room. And do you know who that was? <laughs> it was the window woman. It was the woman who had been opening and closing the windows. And so in my own mind, I saw, because of my, um, my story of her, my view of her with aversion being its root, I had no metta with my idea of her as the woman who was opening and closing the window. I couldn't see her in her full humanness, you know? 
And when I realized it was the same woman who was weeping in her room, it was such a humbling moment for me and such an incredible teaching moment that that was the same person. And it was 100% my um, aversion and judgments and view that was getting in the way. It's a real like, whoa. You know, so that's where the Vipassana is really, really important, right? <laughs> to be investigating and looking through um, our personality views, getting to see personality view and the classes at work. I think I'll share one more story and then a poem. I'm totally preaching to the choir here. You know, you're, you're all here. <laughs> you're all here and care to develop your hearts. It's, it's uh, great. Um, but, you know, we just, we get going so quickly in modern life and it's easy to lose sight of, you know, at, at the end of the day, what really, really matters. It's easy to lose sight of that. And I, you know, I do a fair bit of death recollection in my life. I'm interested in the recollection. Maranasati, it's, it's active for me and it's been a very important practice um, practice for me. And um, I think at the end of our lives, one of the things that probably, well, I think for me that will be most important to know is, is that, you know, did I, did I love well? Did I, did I love the people and beings I cared for well? And um, when my mother was going through her dying process a couple of years ago, it was a, the, the t- process of her act of dying. It was protracted, it was long, it was hard. And I was with her throughout that process. And, um, you know, like, like often happens in a, in a dying process, there were times when, you know, she would be um, lucid for a few moments and then completely inside. And there was one time when she, you know, she'd gone many, many days without food and then she'd gone some days without water and we kept thinking she was, you know, not going to have another in-breath, but she, she kept breathing for several more days. And, uh, but there was one moment at the, you know, this was probably five or six days before she, before she passed into the great beyond, but I was just sitting with her in the silence. She'd been quiet for a long time and... She, she came out and she, she was so, so, in, so inner, the consciousness. She, she came out and looked at me and she said in this belabored way, she said it five times and she just said, Aaron, I love you. Five times. And it was, it was such a um, generous thing of my mother to, I imagine the effort it must have taken for her to say that, but there was a, there was a teaching for me in that, that like at the very end, that's what she wanted me to know. And it didn't actually live in the words. You know, it's much, much deeper, deeper than the words. And there's like, it just is a calling. You know, it's like, okay, got it, got it. Dhammapada in this world, hate never dispels hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? And I think the meaning here isn't just like an argument with somebody else. How can you quarrel even with yourself? This is by Mark Nepo, Having Loved Enough. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. 
These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen the way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. A moment of quiet together. Thank you for your attention tonight. I would encourage you, you know, at any point to just um, add, and may I be well. You know, if there's a tangle happening, and may I be well. And just to notice what happens as, as you open more and more in your Vipassana practice to this, um, this field that includes the, the heart sense. Time for, for walking and you'll be, you know, well primed for the chanting tonight at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.